it's really good to be here to see you. I see a lot of people here I don't know as well, so welcome if it is your first time. Uh, it's really good to have you, as Raf said. Please do stick around for food. All of you stick around for food. Annabelle and the cooks have done a great job on that. And Nathan Ladin has made like six sourdough breads for us. So, like, I mean, this is East London. We've got to partake. Um, so please stick around uh, and just chat, get to know us. Let's just be family together uh, today. And uh, thank you for praying for me last week as well. Uh, for those of you who were here, I was a bit poorly and I had to preach. So uh, I get to preach. Um, and uh, we got through it, got through the evening service as well. But Isaac's now unwell, so he's at home with, um, with Dee and the twins. So pray for Dee. Um, and Isaac uh, as she looks after them. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've just been really excited about what God has been doing uh, here through us uh, over the last few months, really since the start of the year. It really just feel like, particularly in our worship, as we have sung to him, as we have expressed our love for him, and as Raph and Ange has said, just like as we've kind of expressed who he is and talked about God's character and his beauty, like it really feels like God has done something in us and uh, he's really kind of answered that by his presence amongst us in, a, I think, particularly powerful way these last few weeks. And over the last couple of years, really, we have felt as a church, as leaders, that one of the things that we really need to press into uh, is this theme of discipleship. Discipleship is uh, learning to live like Jesus, uh, to learn from him, to live like him, and to ultimately be loved by him as we live in this city and in this world. And I think one of the reasons why I think this has been so important for us is that we live in one of the most contested moments in history. And followers of Jesus and really society at large are grappling with some of like really big existential questions about what it means to be human, what it means to be in a society with different views and different beliefs and different backgrounds. And we're grappling with so many of these questions kind of all at the same time. It's this kind of melting pot of, of questioning and uh, re-evaluating what it means to be human. In an age of kind of uh, particular, particularly acute anxiety or depression, uh, where is the hope for flourishing, for peace and serenity? How do we answer that kind of epidemic in our culture at the moment? In an age where so many are searching for an identity that fit, fulfills us, what does it truly mean to be human? And in an age of destructive power and global upheaval, how do we live free from fear and trepidation when so many of these things are just completely out of our control and out of our hands. And then specifically for us as followers of Jesus, in a post-Christianized culture, in a post-Christianized city, how do we discern and then follow Jesus in the path that he lays out for us? Now, as I've said, I've been just so encouraged by what God seems to be doing amongst us these last few months. And I believe that God is kind of calling us to a deeper commitment and a deeper uh, and stronger uh, commitment to him and that we really take hold of what he says in his word in the gospel in the new testament that he is life to the full he is life that is truly life but i feel like when we answer that that call when we answer that invitation to surrender more of ourselves it does kind of it costs us a little bit more as well if we really exalt jesus with our life it's not just words it actually it actually is a cost to us there's a cost to how we live our life, but we know that in that he is so good, he is so kind, he is life to the full, he is life that is truly life. When we surrender to him, it is the safest, best place to be. And this kind of phrase that I've kept coming back to these last few years, really, as we focused in on discipleship, as we thought about it, as we've read about it, the phrase I've come back to more and more is this phrase, resilient discipleship. So not only are we wanting to focus in on discipleship, but we need to have resilient discipleship because of this kind of contested moment that we're in, this city that we live in, where there are so many things trying to pull our attention. 
We need this resilience because there are daily temptations to live a life for the self, to live a life in a different way that is kind of the opposite of what Jesus calls us to. Living a life for power or for wealth or for comfort or for sexual expression. And discipleship because that is how we follow Jesus. Resilient discipleship. Discipleship is how we follow Jesus. It's the daily journey of being loved by him. That is always the first place we start. We are loved by him. We get to learn from him and we get to live like him in this city. And so one of the things we've done uh, or started to do really as we've wanted to focus in on discipleship uh, is we've wanted to uh, do a couple of things. One is uh, we kick-started kick uh, in the autumn term what we've called Life to the Full, which is kind of our shorthand of talking about discipleship, specifically about discipleship. And we set up that series, I'm sure many of you remember it, uh, on what it means to be a disciple, what does that mean, what does it mean to learn from him, what does it mean to be loved by him, what does it mean to live like him, really is like a, a kind of a starting point for what we wanted to do, which was create these mini-series specifically on separate themes, like prayer or evangelism or work and rest, those kind of things, that really get into the to grips of to how we kind of navigate these kind of questions and how we live life in this city. And we also felt we really wanted to get into the Word, uh, which is obviously a really important thing. So we've got, uh, started at the start of the year this series through Luke. Probably it's not just going to go through the whole year. It's probably going to go into next year as well. But hopefully that excites you rather than thinks, oh my gosh, yeah, there's, a lot, there's a lot of Luke. But I've just been, I think it's been a really, we've had a really good start to that. We've done part one of that. Uh, chapter, uh, Jesus' birth, his kind of childhood, up to the point where he's about to begin his public ministry, and we'll restart that after Easter. But today, we are starting, as uh, Justin said, uh, this one of these mini-series, Life to the Full mini-series on discipleship, on potentially one of the most powerful and important uh, influences on the life of anyone, let alone a follower of Jesus, and that is what we do with our money. But why this series, so why, why this, and why now? Well, I think there's a few reasons why this is particularly relevant for us today. Firstly, we are facing one of the most challenging financial situations in recent memory. Interest rates have gone up, uh, our daily and weekly costs have gone up, from energy bills to food to childcare costs and to rent, and this pretty much is affecting everyone. Everyone in this room is probably affected by some level of rising cost. But for others, that will actually cause real personal anxiety, real personal worry about our financial situation. And just to say, we've started a partnership with a charity called Acts 435 where we can um, anonymously post uh, people in this community that have particularly financial, uh, feeling particularly financially stretched, like either can't pay rent for a month or need cover with their bills or food costs or childcare costs, whatever it is. And Annabelle, who's actually cooking for us, uh, she's in the kitchen, she's our advocate. So if any of that is relevant to you, if you are feeling real pressure uh, financially, please speak to Annabelle or, of course, speak to me. We'd love to help you, and we can kind of show you the process of uh, what Acts 435 is all about. What we do is then post it in our mon uh, Monday email anonymously to say, hey, church, there's someone in our community that needs some help. Can you help? And then we can give directly to that person. So it's a really amazing organization. So yeah, please speak to me or Annabelle if you want any more uh, on that. But some of us are, are facing real personal anxiety about our finances when we already live in a very expensive city where making money is, to be perfectly honest, one of the best things this city does Best. It's one of the defining features of this city. When we say the city of London, we mean the banking system, we mean finance. That is literally what comes to mind when we say that. We just need to walk outside. I remember when, in our last place in the garden, we were just towered by big Barclays buildings and HSBC like Canary Wharf was just towering over us. It's like, oh wow, these are the temples of our city, making money, uh, finance. We get reminded of that on a daily basis. And so as we are rooted and committed to this city, 
we need to be asking these kind of questions, like what place does money have on our hearts and our lives as followers of Jesus, particularly for those of us that will make a lot of money in this city? What place does it have? And what role does generosity have in someone who is blessed with money and how does that affect how they live day to day? And secondly, if part of discipleship is learning from Jesus, then we need to listen to what he says about money, what he teaches on about money. And Jesus is pretty explicit about money, as we'll see a little bit uh, later today and through this series. Uh, He talks a lot about how it relates to the kingdom of God and how it has such a power to distort what we truly desire in this world. And today, one of the questions we'll be asking is, is why is that? Why is it so powerful? What is so unique about the power of money that we need to pay special attention to and therefore be intentional with the money we've been given to steward? And then finally, as I've kind of alluded to a bit already, if this is a moment for us as a church to truly seek Jesus and his kingdom, to fully surrender to him, then we need to be asking some of the difficult questions about what that means and face some of the uncomfortable realities and confront the idols uh, that may have got a grip on our hearts as we seek to live out in this city. And I think in a culture and a city like ours, probably the two most powerful outward indicators of a life surrendered to Jesus is what we do with our bodies and what we do with our money. Now, before I get more into this and uh, get more into the the passage that we're going to read, I want to make a disclaimer. Uh, It is probable that there are people in this room uh, who have had some pretty awful experiences with how the church has handled the subject. And when the love of money gets uh, into the fabric of a church, community, or a leadership, it is incredibly destructive. And in some cases, the love of money has distorted theology and how scripture is interpreted. That is used to coerce uh, behavior that can have a catastrophic effect on how we view God and how we view the church. And if you are processing or if you're healing from that kind of experience, um, I'm so sorry you've had to go through that. And please do speak to us. I hope this series will be helpful in uh, you just um, getting clarity and just healing from that experience. But also please talk to us, talk to me, talk to Raf, Adnan or Sarah, whoever, one of your community leaders. We'd love just to help you process that uh, if that has been your experience. And so with that said, I'm kind of holding the tension, really, of knowing that people would have gone through those kind of experiences uh, with the importance of actually talking about the subject and looking to Scripture uh, as followers of Jesus. I'm kind of holding that tension, and we're holding that tension as we go, out, uh, go through this series over the next, uh, this week and the next three weeks. So uh, with all that says, uh, let's read uh, a well-known teaching from Jesus uh, found in the Uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, from verse 19. Uh, Is everyone all right? Everyone good? Yeah, we're all good. Great. Uh, So uh, the words will be on the screen. Uh, Let's read. So Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, and you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So many of you would have heard of the businessman Warren Buffett. 
He's your classic kind of self-made American, uh, American dream type of guy. It came from nothing and at one point was actually the wealthiest man on earth. And there are many factors that kind of drove Buffett into becoming as successful as he is. Uh, but there was one moment that shaped his imagination like no other. Here's how the FT described it, Financial Times described it. It was a scene from the stock exchange dining room that captured Warren's imagination. We had lunch at the exchange with a fellow named Atmol, great name, by the way, a Dutchman, a member of the stock exchange, and a very impressive-looking man. After lunch, a guy came along with a tray that had all these different kinds of tobacco leaves on it. He made up a cigar for Mr. Mole, who picked out the leaves that he wanted, and I thought, this is it. It doesn't get any better than this. A custom-made cigar. A custom-made cigar. The visions that cigar evoked in Warren's mathematical mind. He had zero interest in smoking a cigar, but working backward, he saw what hiring a man for such a frivolous purpose implied. To justify the expense must mean that even while most of the country was still mired in the depression, the cigar man's employer was making a great deal of money. He grasped it right away. The stock exchange must pour forth streams of money, rivers, fountains, cascades, torrents of money, enough to hire a man for the pure frippery of rolling cigars. That day, as he beheld the cigar man, a vision of his future was planted. He kept that vision when he went back to Omaha, old enough now to organize his quest and pursue it all the more systematically. Even as he followed the pastimes of an ordinary boy, playing basketball and ping-pong and collecting coins and stamps, he worked with a passion for the future he saw ahead of him, right there in sight. He wanted money. Now, I'm not here to have a go at Warren Buffett. I don't know him, and I probably never will. If I end up knowing him, that'd be really odd if that happens. But this story, it just speaks to the power of our desire, the power of our longing, and the power of the vision we have for our life. And it shows that when something captures your heart, when it captures your imagination, it influences everything. It influences the trajectory of your life. But this also shows just how powerful money can be when that is the object of our desire. And Jesus knew this. And he gives us these three metaphors in this passage in Matthew that help us to identify whether wealth has distorted or taken hold of our desires, our longing, and our vision. That our heart, those things we long for the most, they always, uh, what always follows is our treasure. The things that take up our imagination about what the good life is. He believed, my notes are wrong, one sec. I knew this was going to happen, because, uh, there we go, that our eyes, there we go, how we see that, this happened, this happened twice now, this happened in Stockwell, I don't know why, this is why I have page numbers on my notes, if you ever do public speaking or you preach, always put page numbers, because once, once, there was a preacher who didn't do this, all their notes fell on the floor, picked them up and was like, oh my gosh, I don't know where I am, so um, this is why you have page numbers in, listen, here ends the teaching, <laughs> um, so our hearts, they, they, they shape our longing, our desires, our eyes, um, and this is really actually profound that this was in this passage, I think. It kind of feels a little bit random, that, that, that little insert from Jesus. But actually, our, our eyes, it's all about how we see the world, what shapes us, what the vision of our life is. And actually, how we see the world shapes the goodness of our life, whether it's full of light or full of darkness. And ultimately, all of this is about what we worship, what we have given our life to, really. In Luke, uh, Jesus gives a parable uh, to supplement this teaching from Matthew. It's called The Rich Fool. And he tells the story of this rich man who produced an abundance of crops, so much that he ran out of places to store them. And he decides to knock, out, knock down his old barns and build larger ones to store his great wealth. 
And then he speaks these words that I think could probably summarize what so many, or what at least our culture imagines as the good life, about what a life we should all strive for looks like. This is what it says after he has kind of built these barns and and stored all his uh, crops, all his wealth. He says this, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And Jesus concludes the parable by saying, uh, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich towards God. And Jesus creates this kind of paradox here in this teaching. The rich fool, as he was known, was trying to meet this kind of spiritual longing or this desire to have a life that is worth living. He was trying to meet that with a material solution. He believed that his soul, and that's super important, that word, is no, no accident that word, is, uh, Jesus uses that word, that his soul will be satisfied because of the security and comfort that his wealth brought. But with this use of this word soul, Jesus is showing that we are more than material. And therefore our souls can only truly be satisfied by something deeper, something more profound, something eternal, something spiritual. And actually the purpose of our life, because we are heart, soul, mind, strength people, the purpose of our life isn't just the accumulation of wealth and comfort and security. It's more than that. It is greater than that. We are more than material. And I think it's very easy for us, I talked a bit about this last week, in a, in a city that is stripped of transcendence, where there are so many uh, reminders that this city does not uh, kind of um, uh, display the glory of God on a regular basis. Uh, we are so uh, tempted or so easy to succumb to the temptation of materialism, to allow wealth to become the place we look to to satisfy these longings and this vision for our life. And I want to be clear as well that this is not about seeing wealth as morally or ethically bad. It's not. It can be very, very good. It can bless. It can alleviate hardship. And it can allow us to enjoy the good gifts that God has created. But it is what we do with our wealth that counts and where it is placed within our heart. And we see this in the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus in one of the uh, Gospels, if you want to check that out. Uh, But as followers of Jesus, we cannot allow uh, this desire for wealth, this desire for riches, this desire for money to be the ultimate thing in our life. Because ultimately, that is therefore the thing we will worship. That's the thing we become enslaved to. Instead, Jesus' encouragement to us is to spend our lives storing up what he calls heavenly treasure. So what is heavenly treasure? Paul, uh, in a letter to the Ephesian church, uh, says this. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So storing up uh, or having a seeking heavenly treasure is firstly about recognizing the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us, that we have been the recipients of his generosity to us, that he gave his life, he gave everything for us, and then surrender our life as a response to that grace, reflecting his love, his goodness, his grace, his generosity back to him and the world around us. And most of Jesus' teaching is, uh, is about what it looks like to store up heavenly treasure. And ultimately, it's, it's about love. Love your neighbor, love God as yourself. And through this teaching in Matthew 6 and through this parable, Jesus is warning us that money seems to have a special kind of power in redirecting our hearts away from God. I've shared this before, uh, but it's, I think it's really helpful for us when we think about this. That, uh, the final word of uh, Matthew 6, 24, 
It's just simply translated in our Bibles as the word money. Uh, but the power of what Jesus is actually saying in this teaching is, is kind of lost in our English translations. So Jesus would have taught this uh, in his native language, Aramaic, uh, which the gospel writers then translated into Greek in the gospels. Uh, but occasionally, they would, they would leave an Aramaic word uh, in the original language. They'd leave it um, to emphasize a point. Well, because there was a special uh, kind of significance to the words uh, that Jesus was using that would have lost its significance if they translated it into Greek. And this is one of those moments. And the word that they leave untranslated, the word they leave in the original Aramaic is this word here, mammon. It's what, a word you might be familiar with. Now, the word means money or assets or wealth in the Aramaic, but there were plenty of words in the Greek, as you can imagine, uh, that the gospel writers could have used, but they leave this word in its original form. They leave it in Aramaic. So why did they do that? Well, the gospel writers and the early church came to believe that Jesus wasn't simply talking about a, a neutral commodity or a unit or a value or even an idea. He was talking about a power or principality that has a will that is counter to the will of God. Jesus is saying is that mammon is not neutral. He's saying it has the power to entice you, to grip your heart, and has the potential to become the object of what you truly worship. And we see this in the story of the rich fool. Build bigger and bigger temples to his own wealth, trying to satisfy this spiritual longing with a material solution. And this is about us learning and recognizing the kind of idols in our culture and resisting them with the help of the power of the Spirit, resisting them and the temptation of mammon, and in all things making Jesus the object of our worship. But not only do we have the Spirit's help as we pray in our liturgy every Sunday, we also have a practice. We have a spiritual discipline to outwork this and live this in our lives, and it's the practice of generosity. So generosity is the outworking of an inward condition. It's a practice that can be outworked by anyone, uh, rich or poor, and the presence of it in your life will be one of the clearest indicators of the place money has in your heart. Generosity frees us from the power of money, but it also frees us uh, to use money as a blessing. Generosity has the power to free us from the destructive uh, impact the love of money and possession has on our hearts, has on our homes and our communities, and this need to kind of hustle and hurry and strive that can only lead to burnout and anxiety and hopelessness. But generosity frees us. It frees us to trust God with our money and know his provision above all else. Give generously and experience the joy that comes from that. And live in a way that shows where the greatest treasure of all truly lies. We have been denied the recipients of just incredible generosity. There's one moment that stuck out as we kind of reflect on our own uh, life. And in many ways, what we're doing now could only have happened because of the generosity of other people in our life. And uh, when we announced last year that uh, we were going to have twins, um, we got a, a card in the post uh, just out of complete, I don't know where someone we knew sort of, sort of well, didn't come to the church but was connected in some way with just the most generous gift. And um, it kind of, the gift was amazing and it obviously helped, but it was almost like, wow, this person, their life was like, to give to us, like these people we barely know, to give to us and be, um, and for that to even come into your head, like to hear that this is going to happen, I just think is an incredible inspiration for a life kind of lived, living out this kind of call to be generous that Jesus kind of um, imparts to us, like it's just incredible. It's one of the most profound 
I think, blessings to be part of a church community that bless and give and are generous to each other. And I'm sure there are many, oh, I know there are many examples, and I'll come on to some of those uh, in just a moment. But today I just want to focus in on uh, a practice that um, is specific to uh, the church. Uh, so this is something that the church, some churches will talk about too much. Other churches won't talk about enough uh, when it comes to generosity, and it's the practice of tithing. So what is tithing? Well, tithing is the outward practice of an inward condition that everything we have is from God, and how he asks that us to display that is through giving back 10% to him. Uh, now, there might be a few responses to the practice of tithing, particularly if it's the first time you've heard it or heard that kind of idea. Uh, one response to tithing is like, yeah, this is, just, this is just what you do. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and you've given joyfully 10% to the church uh, over, the, the, over the years of your life, or you've seen it displayed to your family or whatever. But another reaction might be, what? 10%? Are you serious? Uh, now, I completely get that, and my hope is that through this series, what I'm about to say uh, won't kind of uh, create any sort of pressure on you, but you'll be able to go on this uh, journey in terms of your own giving, uh, not just to the church, but also more broadly. And please do speak to me. This doesn't need to be awkward or complicated. We also have the postcards at the back that give you a little bit inf- more information about uh, giving to the church and what that looks like. But I want to speak specifically to tithing because I think there will be lots of differences of opinion and and interpretation when it comes to this. And so I want to give a quick summary on why we believe the principle of tithing is so important to us uh, as followers of Jesus uh, today. So I think there's three. I think there's a theological reason. I think there's a formational reason. And I think there's a missional reason why we should take this practice seriously. So firstly, theological. In the Old Testament, tithing was more akin to repaying a debt than it was giving a gift. The people of God believed that everything they had was a gift from God, and all he required back was the first 10%. In fact, in Malachi, it describes that those who aren't giving a tithe as stealing from God, uh, not just withholding generosity. However, some questioned the role of tithing. Uh, because it was laid out in the law of Moses and the followers of Jesus are no longer under the law. But the slight kind of problem with that interpretation is that the tithe appeared before the law was written in the life of Abraham and Isaac. And you could actually argue in the story of Cain and Abel back in Genesis 4. You could also argue that uh, the second sin we read about in Scripture was actually withholding generosity to God. If the first sin was Eve and Adam in the garden, the second sin we see is of Cain withholding his kind of offering to God in Genesis 4. But because as followers of Jesus we are no longer under the law, it doesn't mean we disregard it completely. If anything, in the New Testament, Jesus raises the bar. Instead of saying, don't murder, he says, don't get angry. Instead of saying, don't have sex with someone who you're not married to, he says, don't even think about someone else lustfully. And I don't know why Jesus would kind of uh, lower the bar for our giving when money has such a profound influence on our hearts. And the other factor about tithing was it was the minimum the Israelites gave because they believed they were kind of repaying a debt or kind of that was the expression of tithing. Um, they then were able to give voluntary gifts on top of that. There are other uh, examples in the Old Testament that go beyond the tithe that they were giving because of the love and abundance they had for God. Another way of saying it is the kind of tithe was the floor, not the ceiling of their giving. Now, I'm not saying we need to be super legalistic when it comes to tithing. The series is called Joyful Generosity, not Legal Generosity. Uh, but when, when we read about giving and generosity in the New Testament, it is, it is always loving, it is always joyful, it is always abundant, and it wasn't always limited to a tenth. The helpful comparative 
a way to think about this and how I've kind of, that kind of helped me think about this is uh, to see the tithe in a similar way to the Sabbath. So like tithing, it was present before the law of Moses was written in the story of creation. And in the New Testament, it's actually given as an example about how or what can happen when legalism gets into our faith. And yet we believe it is a very good practice for followers of Jesus to follow. It allows us to stop, to rest, to have moments of joy and express our gratitude to God. And I think it's the same with tithing as well. So I think there's a theological argument for tithing. Just to say, if it's your first time this Sunday, welcome to church. It's so good to have you. Um, no. Yeah, anyway. Um, So I think there's a theological reason. Uh, But secondly, I think there's a formational or a discipleship reason for tithing. And much of what I've said kind of feeds into this. It kind of speaks to the grip and the power of money on our heart. But I don't know if we can truly say with all integrity that Jesus has it all, that Jesus has everything, if we're not at least considering our approach to giving. And that if we find this maybe uncomfortable or challenging, just to prayerfully consider whether this is an area of your life you've not fully submitted to him. One couple who were reflecting on their own giving said uh, that the Lord got our hearts when we began to tithe. Again, it's this powerful outward expression of the place money and the place God has on our hearts. And so giving generously, it, it does something to us. It does something to our heart. And it breaks this power of mammon. And when we give into his kingdom, it's kind of showing, it's this expression of where our treasure truly is. Now, some of us may have come from a kind of church theology that says if you give, you'll receive some kind of financial blessing in return. Uh, the prosperity gospel is kind of the, the, the phrase or the, the, the uh, description of what that might look like. And there might, again, be just some pain associated to this whole subject, particularly giving to the church. Now, I do genuinely believe that God does bless us when we give, but that won't always be financial. We give because we love him. We don't give because we think we're going to get something back in return. But I think there is this this synergy or this link between the place money has on our hearts, but also uh, the place Jesus has on our hearts. I think that is evident through what Jesus teaches. Randy Alcorn puts it like this. He says, the principle is timeless. There's a powerful relationship between our true spiritual condition and our attitude and actions concerning money and possessions. So I think there's a theological and I think there's a formational mandate uh, for tithing. And finally, I think there's a missional reason. Firstly, it it literally pays for the work of the church. Uh, We would not be here doing what we're doing if it weren't for people in this community giving generously to the work of the church, giving sacrificially to the work of the church. And I've said this before, but we have this this building uh, because of the generosity of others kind of sewing into what we're doing here in Marland. We're part of uh, Christchurch London, who have multiple services across the city. And we wouldn't have this building if it wasn't for being part of something bigger and the giving of others that will never walk into this, this building. We kind of, we're the recipients of that, and it's just a joy to thank them and thank God for that. But it literally pays for what we do here. It pays for the work of the church. And by being generous to God, by devoting our life to this uh, heavenly treasure and integrating the practice of tithing into our life, if this just becomes something that we do, it will form us into a lifestyle of generosity that goes beyond the church. And it has been just one of the joys of my role uh, to see just how generous people have been in this community who have outlived and lived out this call to be generous. As I said, Dee and I have experienced it in our own life. 
but I've known people buying bikes for each other, push chairs, paying for therapy, covering mortgage costs, and even paying for an Airbnb fine. And none of the recipients of the people that received generosity, none of the recipients of that generosity, they, know, they don't know who the person giving is, who gave that gift is. Um, it was completely secret. And the reason why that's so important and powerful in the life of the community, when you don't reveal yourself as the giver to someone, is that firstly, your relationships, your relationships stay healthy. There's no kind of um, obligation that gets carried around or no sense of I, I, I owe you back or I'm suddenly beholden to you in some way. It kind of keeps our relationships healthy. Um, but it also keeps your heart healthy as you give and nobody knows who, uh, nobody knows, the person you gave doesn't know who you were. Uh, it shows you're not doing it for praise. Uh, you're, you're not doing it for the thanks that comes from it. And the, the powerful thing about it is when you receive a gift of secret generosity, the only person you can thank is, is God. That's the only person you can thank. It kind of uh, swells up and wells up worship in our hearts. And I think that's just such a countercultural way for us to live out as the followers of Jesus in this community, to be generous with one another uh, without expecting anything back in return. I think that's one of the countercultural ways we can live. And I think in a culture that is so marked by materialism, uh, by consumerism, to be a people that choose to go on a journey, to live a different way, I think is one of the most powerful ways we can show Jesus to the world. And by doing this, we just pick up the baton of generations before us, the early church, followers of Jesus right from the very beginning. And Tim Keller writes that the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body, and they gave practically everybody their money. And using the late uh, chief rabbi Jonathan Sachs' term, a creative minority, to describe kind of communities of followers of Jesus, John Tyson and Heather Grizzle describe uh, this countercultural calling of the church like this. The focus of a creative minority or church is on creating disciples of Jesus in radical community who are financially promiscuous, remarkably faithful, and humbly in service to those around them. I think that's just an amazing vision for what we could be doing here in this community. So we are at the beginning of a journey that's just going to last another three weeks after this. And if you're part of a community group, which I'd encourage you to, to get involved, get stuck in, we are going to go uh, through an uh, external course called the uh, Journey of Generosity, it will just help us think about this in our own time. You're going to get kind of individual packs to think about this without any pressure and with space to talk and have conversation around this issue, and not just with the church, but just more broadly. Uh, and as I say, you can go at your own pace with that. Uh, but I do just want to, at the start of this series, just to go back to Jesus' words about uh, the heart, the eye, and the master. Like, who, who do we truly worship? What is, our, what is the vision for our life? Like, what do we imagine our life to look like? Uh, in those years to come or decades to come, God willing, uh, where do we want to give our life to? Is it kind of the story of Warren Buffett? We want money. That's the, that's the vision. That's what captures our imagination. Is it to eat, drink, be merry? Or is it, is it heavenly treasure? Is it something that has eternal consequences? And money can play a part in that. Money, as I said, can play a part in blessing uh, those around us. And some will have a call on their life to make a lot of money and give a lot of money away to help other people. That is just, that's just the reality of some people's lives. Um, but what are we truly living for? Is it heavenly treasure? Or is it the treasure that this city, this world tells us to seek after, make the object of uh, our life, make the vision for our life? And so we are going to go on this journey to think about this over the next three weeks. Uh, and I just encourage you to be open, just to think about this, reflect, 
Um, let's not make this difficult or uncomfortable or awkward. And if, as I said, if you're going through difficulty, please speak to myself or Annabelle. We'd love to help. Um, but we are going to go on this journey, and let's see what God does in us and through us as we do that. So if uh, the band can come back up, uh, I'll just pray for us. Why don't you stand, and we'll sing to close. Jesus, I thank you so much that you have lavished your grace upon us. Yeah, you didn't give us a tenth of yourself, God. You gave us everything. You gave it all. Yeah, and Jesus, I just, I pray, Lord, that whatever emotions or feelings or experiences kind of coming to mind in this moment, however we're feeling, God, would you just come by your kindness and your love and your grace? Would you reveal to us why we're feeling the way we're feeling? Would you show us our own lives? Would we all take a look at our life and see, God, what are we truly living for? What has our heart? What do we see when we think about what a good life is? God, I pray that for those of us who are particularly struggling financially right now, would you come by your peace? Lord, would we know to trust you? Lord, yeah, just pray for those that maybe are really just struggling, Lord, I just pray that over this week they would just be the recipients of generosity. They would almost get a foretaste of, of, of things to come. A, a kind of sign that you are totally trustworthy. Yeah, Lord, and I thank you that we, we stand here because we have received generosity ourselves, God. And yeah, I just pray that, that as we start this journey, you would just guide us, you'd speak to us. Lord, would there be no obligation? Would there be no fear? Would there be no kind of sense of like, oh, if I don't, God will be mad or, or, or any of those kind of feelings maybe stuff we've picked up over the course of our life Lord I just pray there will be a real freedom to give because we are free to trust in you and your, your grace what you lavish upon us yeah thank you Lord Jesus